This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Noam Weissman. Noam is the senior vice president of Open Door Media, formerly Jerusalem U, and is the host of the podcast, Unpacking Israeli History. Prior to that, Noam was the principal of Shalhevet High School, where he taught a range of subjects, including Talmud, Tanakh, Jewish philosophy, and Israeli education. Noam graduated summa cum laude from Yeshiva University with a degree in history, and he is joining us today to discuss two stories in Genesis, the narrative of Sodom, the binding of Isaac, and the connection between the two of them. Noam, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Okay, so we're going to start with Genesis 18? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so uh, start with telling us what's the story. So the story of Genesis 18 is described as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a story in which we see some devastating things happen within a community that doesn't tolerate guests. Um, And we start seeing a total oppression of those who are incredibly vulnerable. And there is a community that is incredibly not righteous. And at that point in time, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy this community. I'm going to destroy this area that is totally opposed to your way of thinking, Abraham, which is the way of chesed, which is the way of righteousness. So what happens is something quite remarkable. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is ostensibly all good, right? This is how we understand God. And all of a sudden, he decides, you know what? I'm going to invite Abraham into my thinking. And it's what Rabbi David Hartman describes as perhaps the most instructive verse in the entire Bible. In 1817, God says, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm going to do? And the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. But his point is that in order to create a new morality, what we really need to do is develop what Hartman calls covenantal morality, a bilateral relationship between man and God in order to bring divinity into the world. And I think we actually see that earlier in the covenant between the pieces, because the covenant between the pieces, that was it before we had um, insurance companies, before we had police forces, before we had other forms of state sponsored security. You had a covenant between the pieces where the parties would cut an animal and make that the center of agreement that they would be with each other forever, both to protect each other in life and to defend their family in death. And what we have here is God initiating a covenant between the pieces with Abraham, which is remarkable. It's not even Abraham initiating it. Abraham doesn't even have to walk through it, but that's a separate story, another story. But I think it gets to exactly what you're saying is that early Genesis, the introduction to Abraham is introducing a new morality in the world. It's one in which God plays a central role that is very much not the God of history, but the God in history. Exactly, precisely. And inviting Abraham into the conversation in order to construct morality. So Abraham becomes God's partner in constructing morality. Exactly. And a few verses later, something remarkable happens where Abraham is told by God, that the very purpose of the Bible, the very purpose of the Jewish people within the Bible, not because they are 
a chosen people, the chosen people, but to be the chosen people. And that is the instruction from God to Abraham. Even in a community, by the way, and this is remarkable, that is antagonistic to all of your ideas, Abraham. Right. So you can be the chosen people, something you are, but you can be the chosen people. Okay. So God says, shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm about to do? And knowing what you're saying is that's basically God saying it's a rhetorical question. You wouldn't ask that and say, yes, I'm going to conceal. He in fact says, shall I conceal? And in fact, uh, does not conceal and thus is inviting Abraham to be his partner in constructing this morality. And I actually think we can see this even earlier in Genesis when God says to who, that's the question, let us make man. Well, who would be the us? I think it's us is, is the, the people that are about to be born. There was nobody else he could have been talking to. So it's, it's like God was always yearning for this partner with whom to construct morality, with whom to govern the world. And here he's finally, thousands of years later, literally after Adam, has found his partner. And there seems to be a consistent theology, perhaps up until Genesis 22 upends that. And we'll, and we'll see that in a minute. But, but let's continue with the Sodom narrative for a little bit, because Abraham is then told by God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy this city. Abraham then says a few remarkable lines. One of the lines is, he says, Can the judge of the entire earth, it's incredibly powerful, the vocabulary that the Bible employs, using the root, shin, pei, tet, Lo Are you not going to do justice? Your job is to do justice, yet you're not engaging in justice. You can't kill everyone. And then he says, Are you really willing to kill the innocent with the guilty? That doesn't seem to be very ethical. And he's pushing back. Either he's clarifying or he's questioning or he's bargaining or he's challenging, whatever it is. He's challenging. No matter what he's doing, he's challenging. Okay. And, and, and I think that that's a very reasonable interpretation. And they're pushed back and forth. And at the end of this dialogue, it says, the Abraham Shavlim Komo, something like that. The, uh, Abraham returns to his place. But importantly, Abraham won the argument. So Abraham bargains God down from if there are 50 righteous people, so there are 10 righteous people. So Abraham wins the argument. God's delighted with the argument and, in fact, concedes the argument to Abraham. In contrast to Noah, because when God said something very similar to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world. Noah's response was effectively, well, how many cubits do you want the ark to be? Right, right, right. And so, and Noah gets a bad rap when he's compared to Abraham. Right, but because there's no argument from Noah, Noah couldn't even say, hey, God, there's that adorable three-year-old girl over there. Is she evil? You want to destroy her? Noah couldn't bring himself to think or say that. And thinking and saying is the same thing in the Jewish imagination. He couldn't bring himself to do that, whereas Abraham makes the argument and takes it directly to God, and God loves it. And, and we see a consistent growth, I would say, in terms of the expectations of what the leaders are supposed to do. And by the way, which is fascinating, it's not spoken about enough. Moses, when the Jewish people are about to be destroyed, Moses follows the Abraham model as opposed to the Noah model and says, if you're going to destroy the Jewish people, he says, erase me from your book. I'm not going to be part of that. We're partners here. I'm not going to allow my Jewish people, my people to be removed from the world. I'm going to argue for them. And it was, it was a brilliant argument from Moses, which is for obviously another, uh, I believe that's Exodus 32. It's another partial, but the brilliance of the argument is Moses is the one guy, if he's out of the Torah, the Torah can't exist. Right, exactly. And he knew that. So he said to God, if you want to destroy the Jewish people, blot me out of your Torah, knowing that God, God had at that point supplier concentration. He needed Moses. Without Moses, there's no Torah. You cannot tell the story you cannot write the Torah in any form without Moses. Moses is the central figure and the indispensable figure from Exodus on. So it was a brilliant argument for 
Moses, and like with Abraham, God loves it. God loves a good argument. And you're right, Abraham teaches that, and that's really the invention of morality right here. So then we see something, therefore, that is quite revolutionary. Because four chapters later, we see something that happens that is quite the opposite. Chapter 22, God says to Abraham something that seems to be quite simple. Take your child, the one and only child, the one you love, Isaac, and go and to Har to, to Eretz Moriah, to the land of Moriah, and bring him up as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that I'm going to, going to show you. And by the way, there's a fascinating parallel between this verse and the first verse where Abraham is in, introduced to, to God, where God says, Lech Lecha, uh, Lech Lecha, and it's actually my Bar Mitzvah Parsha. So I, I love it, but it's the exact same cadence. And I'll read it to you. The cadence is, Go forth from your land, from your place of birth, from your father's house to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you very, very wealthy. I'm going to make you very successful. And then this is the last dialogue. People forget this. This is the last dialogue between Abraham and God. And it's the same exact cadence. That same language to the land of Moriah. To where? To a mountain that I will show you. And this is the last dialogue. So Genesis 12 is mirrored in Genesis 22. Exactly, precisely. So God's first conversation with Abraham is the very same language and the similar context as his last conversation, even though the substance is entirely different. But it's actually very similar also, because and Abraham is told to leave his father, right? And now he's told to leave your son, right? So there's a fascinating parallel here. But in, in one case, he's to leave to construct a new world. In this case, he's to leave to destroy that which is most precious to him. Which is all the more absurd, right? And it's incredibly confounding. And it's why people like Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rabbi Lamb and Yishai Leibovitz really view the Akedah, this moment, this binding of Isaac that's about to happen, as the spiritual zenith of Abraham's career, this moment. And why? Well, there's self-transcendence, there's self-negation, there's self-denial. And in order to really connect, in order to really demonstrate that you are a servant of God, one needs to do that which is what Kierkegaard describes as the teleological suspension of the ethical. Of that which is most either ethical to you or desirous of you, you have to give it up in order to demonstrate full fidelity to that thing. Well, and of course, there is another point of view that Kierkegaard is wrong, that God never asks us to suspend the ethical. In fact, he always asks us to enforce the ethical and that Abraham's great mistake here is not arguing with God. Abraham's mistake is not being Abrahamic. Which is what? Not arguing with God. Chapter 18, right? Well, in, in 22, he, he loses the Abraham of 18. So the argument would be in 22, he should have been Abrahamic. What would an Abrahamic figure have done in 22? He said, God, I'm not going to kill my son. You don't want me to kill my son. We got to have a conversation. Abraham doesn't do that. Okay, so, so let's go with that for one second. Then the idea is Abraham failed the test here, right? And Rashi, by the way, you could, be, you could back that up with Rashi because Rashi on the verse, Rashi is this incredible 11th century commentator who really commented on everything from the Bible to the Talmud. He says, he proves that it was a failure. Perhaps you could read Rashi this way because Rashi says, Lo amar lo I never said slaughter him. God never would desire to slaughter him, rather to elevate him, where? In order to do a sacrifice. But not, no, Abraham, I never would have asked this of you. 
I totally agree with that interpretation because the word God never directly commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. You know the Hebrew very well, of course. He just says, bring him up to the mountain for a sacrifice, not of him. I just picture God beside being like, oh my God, what is he doing? I didn't mean this. Like a Monty Python sort of thing. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? Sorry, that's a, I just aged us a little bit. Well, it's kind of a massive misinterpretation, which now not the misinterpretations are, are forgivable because they can be clarified. But so I want to push back to that idea that it is a misinterpretation. And then because it actually is going to enforce this idea of why 2212, I believe, is the most important verse in the Bible. But so Yishai Leibovitz explains and he asks the question, why would it be the case that in the story of Sodom, Abraham argues and in the story of Akedat Yitzchak, he says, he named me, I'm here. One of the great questions. Yeah, what's his answer? One of the great questions. So, so Leibovitch, who is a remarkable Jewish philosopher, whether or not you like him or not, he is loudmouth, controversial, but he says it in his mind like it is, and he explains it as follows. The topic at hand in the story of Sodom was justice. And in the realm of justice, in the category of human thought, that is a topic of moral analysis, and that is something that Abraham can be in conversation with. But in the conversation of a divine command, which is not in the category of human thought. It's a question of perfection of faith. And there, Abraham does not debate the issue. He remains silent. He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey and he goes on his way. And so they're apples and oranges. In Sodom, God is not commanding anything of Abraham. In Sodom, he's talking about something that is a question of morality, of human thought. In the story of Akedat Yitzhak, of the binding of Isaac, it's not a story of morality. It's not a story of ethics. It's a story of the divine command. And so therefore, there are two different aspects of what it means to be Jewish. Where you're commanded to do something, one must go forward in the command, says this argument. And where you're invited into a conversation where it's not a demand, but there's room for morality and questions of human thought, that's where you should assert yourself. That's what his argument is. Yes. Perhaps a distinction without a difference or too clever by half, because uh, it is hard to divine, so to speak, between a divine command and a moral philosophy. I mean, in real life, and the Torah is written for real life. And what we see here, according to Rashi, who in this case, I think is probably right, is we see uh, what very well may be, maybe not certainly, but it may be the greatest misunderstanding in biblical history. It may be. And because it may be, Abraham could have at least said, Abraham could have, he could have argued with God, though, but if he argues with God, he presumes he knows that God wants him to slaughter his son. But if he's not sure, if God's saying, go up and sacrifice a ram or whatever, and Abraham, he could have said, wait, God, just let me clarify. So you want me to go up the mountain with Isaac, and then together we're going to sacrifice a ram, right? Or you actually want me to go up the mountain with Isaac, you want me to sacrifice him? Why doesn't he ask God for clarification? He has a direct relationship with God. He, he had the number. Right. He did. Yes. And it's great pushback. And just to, to solidify your pushback even more, this is the last encounter between God and Abraham. This is it in the Bible. This is, this is the last moment. And the last encounter between Abraham and Isaac and the last encounter between Abraham and Sarah, who the next thing we hear from her, she's dead. Right, exactly. So listen, my interpretation is that he did not fail, but I love the ideas of Rashi and I love what you're saying. And I think it's a compelling reading of 22 verses 18. What I want to talk about is 22:12, which I believe is my favorite verse. I can't, I can't wait to hear your interpretation of it. All right, so why don't you read in the Hebrew then the English? So the verse says this, Vayomer al-tishlach yadcha el-hana'ar, this angel of God said, don't stretch forth your hand to the youth. Don't do anything to him. And here it is. Ready? I love this. Now I know that you are a God-fearing person. 
and that you did not save your only one from me. So there are a lot of theological questions. What does it mean now I know? That's one obvious question. Like God doesn't know what's going on in the world. Earlier, we just described him as omniscient. Of course, God knows. So from a theological perspective, it, it, oh, now he knows something? Okay. But what's remarkable here, and I get the chills, Mark, every time I think of this idea, every time. The Kutzker Rebbe, who his mother, by the way, didn't call him Kutzker. Uh, she called him Menachem Mendel, Menachem Mendel Morgenstern. He's from Kutzk. Says the story is seemingly out of sequence. And it's something that I should give credit. Rabbi Norman Lamb really gives a lot of color to this idea from the Kutzker. He says, if the binding of Isaac is the test, then the phrase atayadati, now I know, should have come earlier. When he started binding Isaac. Why now, when Isaac was saved, does he say atayadati, now I know? And his answer is that for Abraham to take Isaac off of the altar was many times harder than for him to offer him up in the first place. It's a crazy answer. And the thinking goes like this, okay? And this is from Norman Lamb. If the nature of man, and I wrote this down, once he has taken a clear position in life, especially if he has suffered for it, not to retreat from it, but to mold the future along the doctrines of the past in order to vindicate his past, it is part of our normal psychology, what we have invested in time and energy, loyalty and commitment, prestige and reputation in a certain approach. We do not want to change. We cannot change, lest we hereby declare that our entire past has been invalid and inauthentic. Self-justification, says Rabbi Lamb, of our past dictates our future. It's a remarkable idea because in life, what we do is often simply justifying what we've done in the past. And what we don't do is we don't allow ourselves to grow. We don't allow ourselves to think differently than we used to. And what Abraham had to do here is say, hey, listen, I, I listened to you. I suspended the ethical. I, it doesn't make sense. You wouldn't tell me to kill someone, but I did it anyway. And I put all my energies into that. But then he says, one second, but I'm not going to allow the future of my life to be dictated by what happened in the past. That is such a brilliant point. And yet again, this proves that the Bible is true. Now, when people hear that, they think is talking about history, that this really happened, that really happened. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is a guidebook. So when I say this proves, this is just one of many points that proves the Bible is true. Your interpretation, which is directly responsive to the biblical text, has been proven by 21st century social science, where there was a study after the 2004 election of how people's brain responded when their views of Bush and Kerry were confirmed and denied. And it turns out that when your views are confirmed, the same pleasure receptors go off as when you're eating chocolate or having an orgasm. That's how good it feels to be right. And this actually follows up from a 1954 or 55 study by the psychologist Leon Festinger, who studied how did members of end of the world cults respond when the world didn't end? And they never said, never said, we were wrong. All they said was, well, there's one detail that, meet, that needs to be adjusted. Because one of the hardest things for us is to say, I was wrong. I'm going to readjust my thinking and go with the other side. That's very hard because we're fighting against the pleasure receptors of chocolate and the orgasm. And what the Kutzker Rebbe was saying was that this was Abraham's great accomplishment, is being able to say, I was wrong and I'm going to change. And we see that again, theologically. That's why David is... King David and Saul doesn't get the credit because he says, I made a mistake and let's move on. 
right? The reason Adam Grant, who is an incredible author, he just authored a book called Think Again, and it's going to be, I think, released in February. It's all about embracing the joy of being wrong, right? And I love that idea. And in our modern culture, in which exactly like you were saying, Mark, where people are so insistent on being right, what I describe as the Shammai approach to Judaism, the Shammai approach to life, which is there's a debate between Shammai and Hillel. Who wins? It's Hillel. But Shammai was Harifa Tuva. But I think what you're showing is it's actually not modern culture. This is ancient psychology. Because what you're saying is Abraham's great accomplishment, so great it's your favorite part of the Bible. Abraham's great accomplishment is being able to think again. Yes, Mark. It being able to think again. And I think that the ability to continue thinking and to think differently is an ultimate demonstration of the most important quality, which is humility. If you're able to think, oh my gosh, I was wrong for the last five years about this. I was wrong for the last 10 years. Listen, I once had a supporter, uh, a donor of ours at Open Door Media say to me, and I thought it was a fascinating comment. Uh, he said, listen, Noam, I love what you're doing. Very cool. Very interesting. Here's the thing. I've committed my way to a certain way of thinking for the last 60 years, and I'm not interested in thinking differently. And I was thinking, wow, that's such an honest comment. And it's also such a missed opportunity, right? And it's both. I think you're right on a number of levels. The other level you're right is 60 years. Okay, how old is Abraham when God comes to him in Genesis 12 and says, leave everything, leave your land, leave your birthplace, leave your family? He's 75, which, you know, no one's entirely sure how years were counted in, in ancient times, but 75 is old. In, in any counting. I mean, he was not a young man when he's supposed to leave everything, but God is saying that you're 75, it's time to begin again. And Abraham says, great. Yes, and he's, and he's willing to do that. So to me, uh, that's, you're right, it's ancient psychology. Have you heard of the psychologist Dan Kahan? Sure. So he, he has this idea called identity protective cognition, right? Is that essentially what you're talking about? Well, y- yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to, well, I mean, from what you, your point, which I think is exactly right, it goes back to the Bible. But uh, Leon Festinger really proved it in the 50s. And then uh, the current fMRI studies have, uh, have shown it scientifically that we get very invested to the point of experiencing pleasure when, with our views. Our views are pleasurable. I, I think, and I have a book coming out in March on how the, the meaning of life is revealed through the Haggadah. This is the Pharaoh. After 10 plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn, what does the Pharaoh have the Egyptian charioteers? Charioteers, by the way, is singular. They all agree. They're all thinking with one mind. They go chase the Jews. Ten plagues, including the slaying of the firstborn, and they haven't changed their mind. Why? Because people don't change their minds. What else could God do? There was no 11th plague. There's no more you can do than slaying of the firstborn, but even that doesn't change the Pharaoh's mind. And it's not because the Pharaoh is uniquely stubborn. It's because the Pharaoh is human. Exactly. And Jonathan Haidt is another writer on this. And he says, if you really want to change someone else's mind, what you have to do is you have to see things from that person's angle as well as your own. But that's not an easy thing to do. You actually have to step into their shoes in order to do that and say, how do I understand this differently? And if I may, I want to talk about this as it relates to Israel, because Israel is a subject that many people grew up hearing a certain thing about Israel, the mythical Israel, the perfect Israel, the pristine Israel. I love Israel. I grew up in a family that's religious Zionist. You know, I say the blessing of Hallel on Yom Ha'atzmaut. I say gratitude to God. Thank you so much for this blessing that is the state of Israel. But Israel is also incredibly complex and its history is not perfect. And so what we want to challenge people to do, especially in this podcast, but really in all of our content is to say, 
Can you possibly view the history of Israel, the society of Israel, from multiple perspectives? Can you include the Palestinian narrative in order to actually deeply understand a more grand, a bigger understanding of what Israel is all about? Can you see things differently from a different perspective? And I'm not asking people to ultimately say the way I was in the past is totally wrong. No, but I want to expand the pie. I want to expand people's thinking. And this, this, this is your podcast, Unpacking Israeli History, just so listeners know, and they can go get it on Spotify, Apple, and presumably everywhere. Exactly. And what I like to say is the podcast is about Israel, but it's not really. It's about the tension of ideas. And that's exactly what's going on here in 2212. It's saying, hey, listen, I'm open to a different way of thinking about something. Even if I sacrifice my entire life, Yuval Noah Harari talks all about this, how the worst thing about sacrifice often is in order to justify sacrifice, you have to continue sacrificing, right? And so, you know, he, he tells the story in 1915, how Italy entered the First World War, the side of the Entente powers, right? They first lost 50,000 men in the, their first battle. They could have said, you know what? We're going to stop. We're going to stop sacrificing. The second battle, they lost 40,000 men, then 60,000, then 700,000, and more than a million were wounded. And the reason they kept on sacrificing was to justify the sacrifice that they had already made. That's the opposite of what Abraham did. What Abraham did was able to say, I sacrificed, I went through with it, and guess what? Now I'm going to stop. I'm going to transcend myself. And that is, I think, the ultimate of what it means to be a Jew in this world. So how do you tie that into Genesis 18? Well, I think that perhaps this is seeing this slightly differently than how Rabbi Soloveitchik or Rabbi Lamb, not that I'm, there's no comparison, even a little bit. But perhaps the idea here is that all of the stories of Genesis that include Abraham was a journey from chapter 12, where he leads slowly, is going to a land that he's never heard of, that he's not part of. He's moving. It's very difficult to move. I just moved. It's very challenging. And, but he's told at the beginning, you're going to get riches. You're going to become famous. You're going to be a big deal. And so in some ways, there, there's that what's called the lolishma, that there's, an alter, there's a transactional reason for why he's doing it, perhaps, at the beginning. And then the crescendo of Abraham's career in 18 is part of the developing the, of the relationship of covenantal morality, the bilateral relationship between man and God. And then finally, in 2212, we see Abraham transcend himself at the end, without getting anything in return for it. The ultimate Lishma moment of Judaism, of life, where he says, I'm not doing this in a transactional way. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And I'm able to negate all of what I did earlier in this binding of Isaac. And I cannot believe that I went through with it. But guess what? I'm not going to make the mistake of saying, no, God, I'll take it from here. And he listens and he says, I can see beyond myself. And then Abraham I think that's what makes him the ultimate knight of faith. Magnificent. Uh, Noam, thank you for such an interesting discussion. I mean, just fascinating from uh, on so many different levels, uh, combining these two awesome biblical passages. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Noam, in all of your years of working in Jewish education, both as a teacher, a principal, and now as a senior vice president of Open Door, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? The first thing is that people are good. 
I, I believe that people are good. You know, one of my good friends and a mentor of mine, his favorite line is people suck. Um, <laughs> he, whenever something goes wrong, he'll say, no, I'm just remember people suck. And I always say to him, hey, listen, um, I hear that instinct. I believe people are good. I think that people are interested, interested in growing. It's about finding the different avenues to get people there. So I believe at our core, people are good. And I believe that that's based on the idea of Elohai Neshama Shenatata Rahi, that the, we say every single morning in Judaism, that we believe that our soul is pure, it is good. And that to me is a huge understanding of life and to live life accordingly, I would say. And that's my inspirational note. The second thing I would say about life is very similar to what you just said, Mark, which is that teenagers are the same people as adults. And when I'm doing events with adults, when I'm doing events with teenagers, I find that very often that they are a continuation of themselves from when they were in high school. And that teaching students and teaching adults is actually quite similar. And that's, you know, a way to be a little bit more empathic to our teenagers who are constantly criticizing and say they need to do better. No, we could push them and encourage them. But the truth is that adults are teenagers, teenagers are adults, and we have to make sure, I believe, to view both as good and not as quote-unquote sucking. Now, if people were naturally good, why would parenting be hard? Because, you know, if, if people were good, being a parent would be easy. Just say, so, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Why are there all these parenting books? Because parenting is obviously hard because there's all kinds of things that you have to teach kids, all kinds of directions we have to lead them, all kinds of guidance we have to provide for them. You know, this is an educator, of course, among other things, but it's parenting is hard. Parenting, educating, it's all hard. It's, it's, this is the, the stuff of moral direction. It's difficult. If people were naturally good, then we wouldn't have to do any of this. Yeah, so I think it's the same idea as if we're going to go back to this, Abraham of Genesis 18, that in order to do good, you need a bilateral relationship. What that means is my background um, is also, I have a doctorate in educational psychology from USC. And one of the things that I studied there was parenting and education. And there are multiple types of parenting styles, right? There's the negligent parent, you know, do whatever you want. I'm not even paying attention. The permissive parent, you know, I'm actually watching you and I'm saying, I'm the cool dad. I'm the cool mom, you know, just, yeah, you watch a rated R movie when you're six years old. That's cool, right? And then there's the authoritarian kind of parent who's saying, do this, do that, make sure this happens. If you don't do this, you're in your room. If you do this, then you get to have ice cream. And then there's the authoritative parent. And the authoritative parent says, come with me. Let me give you a little direction. You have a fork in the road. Let's talk about the implications of both. And let's let you make the decision, but I'm here to guide you on the side. And I believe that that relationship between parent and child is very much so mimicked um, and maybe even grows out of the relationship between God and mankind. Well, Noam, thank you for such an interesting discussion on so many levels, and uh, God bless you and all the work you do. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.